Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. This is the 500th episode of the podcast and we are in celebration mode today. JJ, can you give me a bit of celebration music? And as you know, JJ is our very sound, sound man who has been with us for all 500 episodes and oh, the stories JJ could tell and the stories we've told over 500 episodes. We've been around for nearly six years And in that time, we've covered everything from endometriosis to long distance love, abortion to menopause, women in politics to self-love. I don't know if Cathy Sheridan and I would have believed we'd still be here 500 episodes later. And I want to thank every single person who's appeared on the podcast. Sinead O'Connor, Samantha Power, Marion Keyes, Amy Huberman, Maeve Higgins, Tara Flynn, the young students from Mercy College, Catelyn Moran, so many brilliant people Um, and the Women's Podcast has given us so much to think about and talk about and most of all we want to thank you our listeners for all your feedback and suggestions and your praise and sometimes your criticism which is also important. We're older and bolder now and that is the theme of this celebratory 500th episode today. Now, last week, as you know, we had a special live recording of the podcast to mark our 500th episode and we gathered 10 incredible women from the ages of 19 to 81. We're going to bring you some highlights of that very emotional evening in this, our 500th episode. If you want to watch the whole thing again or if you missed it last week, you can go to our Facebook page at IT Women's Podcast and you'll see it all there. The theme, as I said, was older and bolder. And each woman took that theme and spoke about what it meant for them or for the women in their lives. And before they told their stories, Cathy and I asked each of the women what age they were and the age they were in their head. So I'll tell you what they said about that as well at the beginning of each story. And we're going to begin with legendary broadcaster Olivia O'Leary, who told us she is 71, but also 11 and a half in her head, which is a lovely age to stay at, I think, climbing trees and riding her bike. Olivia spoke about intergenerational living and how her aunt Alice came to live with her and her family rather than going into a nursing home. And here she is, Olivia O'Leary. Okay, well, I was thinking about stories and the story that came to my head was a story about my aunt Alice. My aunt Alice was actually my grandmother's cousin, but you know the thing in Irish families that anybody older than you, you call aunt. And aunt Alice had decided what nursing home she was going to go to. Aunt Alice was a very practical lady and um, had announced this to my mother. They'd visited and they had chosen Anyway, I was staying with her because she hadn't been well. And mum said, would you go and stay? And a bit begrudgingly, I did. And I went in to say good morning to her or goodbye because I was heading off to work in the morning. And 
she said to me, she said, do you know what? I said, what? She said, I don't think I'm going to go into that old nursing home. She says, it's full of old ladies. <laughs> and I thought, well, yeah, nursing homes have a habit of being full of old ladies. And Aunt Alice said, your mother said that if I wanted to, I could come down and live with her and Paddy, my father, in Boris. So I want you to go down and ring her now and see if that's all right. So I headed down the stairs thinking of my mother, who was bringing up the rest of the family, there are eight of us, who was running a bakery because my father was ill with Parkinson's, who was holding it all together. And I rang her and I told her what Aunt Alice had said. And mum said, I'll ring you back in a minute. I'm going to talk to your father. So the phone rang in about two minutes and she gave me her message. And I went upstairs to deliver it to Aunt Alice. And I said, my mother says that you are and my father says it too, as welcome as the flowers of May. And I still remember Alice and the smile on her face, you know, and she brushed me off. Go off to, you go off to work now. That's grand. Off you go. Off you go. She was very bossy. So Alice came to live with us in our ramshackle house where there were eight children, where meals sort of were there on time. But she'd often come down and my mother and father would have taken their breakfast down to the river so they could have a swim before breakfast and then have their breakfast. And Alice couldn't believe that adult people would do that sort of thing. But she always had little ones to do her errands for her. She had two windows, one of which looked down at the church so she could see who was and wasn't going to mass. And the other one looked down on the petrol pumps next door so she could see who had a new Morris Oxford. And she, she wasn't lonely. There was always somebody to talk to. There was always a gossip and a cup of tea in the kitchen. And best of all, there was always my mother, whom she loved, there for her. And I'm sure that it wasn't easy for her. And in ways, it sometimes wasn't easy for us. We're a musical family. And my father every so often would say, she's humming again. Listen to what she's humming. I bet it's the national anthem. And sure enough, there were only two tunes Aunt Alice knew, the national anthem and the benediction hymn, Tanta Mergo. And my dad knew a hundred songs and had a wonderful bass voice. And the notion that somebody would only know two songs was beyond his ken. But I think the reason that she used to sing the songs was that she'd be coming down the stairs. We might all be in the kitchen. She didn't want to interfere with any sort of private going on, maybe. So she would hum her little hymn so that we'd know she was coming. So in Alice's funny, cack-handed way, it was a sort of a courtesy. And she lived with us until she died. And we became extraordinarily fond of her. And what I really admired about her was that in the end, she made a choice. She had told us all proudly she would go to the nursing home. She wouldn't be a burden on anybody. That's where she'd go. But when it came to the point, she decided that she wanted family. She wanted us. She wanted to be in the bosom of the family. So that's where she came. And I know that that's not the sort of solution, Kathy, that's going to be available to me um, or to many of us, because that sort of solution did a bit depend on there being a woman at home who ran the show. But it still allows us, I think, to make our own choices. We can make our own nursing home. We don't all have to end up in a sort of a warehouse arrangement where we all get COVID or we all catch the flu we can get together. I have three musician friends who are getting together to plan the house that they will live in 
and their children haven't been told, but I've been told. And this, you know, will be done the way they want it done. But the person I always remember when it comes to where am I going to be when I grow old is Maeve Binchy. And you may know this story. Mm. Maeve said when the time came, she and her friends would buy a big house. So they all have a separate bedroom. And she said there would be, of course, one essential member of staff. And we said, like, what, the doctor or the matron or whatever. No, said Maeve, the butler, who can bring us all gin and tonics in bed. That was Olivia O'Leary there. What a wonderful story to start our highlights. Next, we'll hear from parliamentary researcher Yara Alaga. Yara is 24, but in her head, she said she was stuck at a carefree 17. I love that. Yara told us a story about how she decided age 19 to start wearing the hijab and about the personal journey she's been on since then. So I suppose when I, you know, when I was thinking about what I want to talk about today, I thought I really wanted to share my hijab story um, and what it meant for me as a 19 year old trying to navigate the world. Um, I just felt that at a moment in time right now, when we look at the current narrative around women's rights and emancipation, and particularly the narrative around choice, um, when we're seeing an increase in this obsession of police and women and what they decide to wear and what not to wear, um, and then the hijab being a constant fixation across mainstream media, you know, something that's largely seen as this ultimate symbol of patriarchal, you know, oppression. And by doing so, we remove agency for Muslim women to, to choose um, and to speak. And I speak in light of uh, France and, and France's recent Senate approval of the hijab ban for minors for Muslim women under the age of 18 and removing that choice for them. And so it brings me back to when I wore it and the barriers I faced and, and the reasons behind me wearing it. So I was 19 at the time. Um, and although at the time it wasn't something I planned to do, it was totally not in my thought process. My twin sister had worn it for six months at this point, and I just couldn't imagine myself wearing it. I was going into my second year of college. I was fully immersed in student campus life, loved going out, was really flamboyant in nature, loved being out there. And it was the most exciting time of my life. Um, and the only thing that could dampen it was wearing the headscarf. <laughs> so for me, it was totally out of the picture. Um, and I was actually just really afraid. Um, and the only reason I'd, I'd put off wearing it for so long was because I was afraid of how my life would change, you know, how people would receive me wearing a headscarf. Um, because I was afraid of the lack of employment opportunities. You know, I wouldn't have the same college experience. I'd be treated completely differently. So it was out of fear. It was out of fear of rejection and, and marginalization. Um, and, you know, I was able to experience life without the headscarf in my teens and my early adult years in Ireland. And I benefited a lot from it. I benefited a lot from white passing, from white privilege, because I didn't wear the headscarf. I benefited so much from it. Um, I blended in. Nobody questioned my identity. Nobody questioned my religion. Um, and so I benefited from a society that offered more opportunities to white people and not just privileges but just how comfortable and easier life is when you blend in when you're part of the majority and not the minority and um, things like really simple things like approaching people for whatever reason I didn't have to think twice whereas now I'm conscious that not everyone will receive me well and I'm conscious that people may be hostile and then that creates a bit of paranoia 
Um, and that's just one tiny thing. There's so many struggles for hijabis and for people from minority backgrounds at a personal level, societal level, structural, institutional level, um, which people don't realize how difficult it could, it could you know, make our daily, daily activities. Um, so yeah, I was 18 when I wore it to set some context. Um, myself and my family, we go on our summer holidays to Spain every year the same small town south of Alicante bustling with Irish and you know British tourists um, and naturally year by year we get to know the locals and even become you know really friendly with them um, and there was this one particular shoe shop that we were extremely familiar with and um, my dad loved it he, we go every year and he stocks up on his shoes and um, so like I said at this point my sister my twin sister had worn a headscarf for a couple of months and you know so we entered this shoe shop and we're really excited to see the sales assistants and although you know I did expect a level of surprise to see my sister Lara wearing the headscarf it was shock horror like they were completely disturbed by her appearance and um, bear in mind you know she's just <laughs> covered her hair not a single aspect or inch of her has changed she has just covered her hair um, and they kind of freak out and you know why did you do that? Why did you cover your hair? Like, look at your sister. She's so much more prettier than you. Like, why did you do that to yourself? Just really chipping at her. That's when I reacted. Um, I didn't understand the reaction. I, I understood there was a level of confusion, um, ignorance maybe, curiosity. But that attempt to really degrade Lara and, you know, humiliate her and compare her to me, when Lara, in my eyes, at that very moment, you know, was the strongest person I knew. You know, she decided at a time where I couldn't see past you know, societal barriers and pressure to look and be a certain way um, and that she had such strong conviction and confidence and pride in herself and that she didn't care and she was so indifferent to their comments and even, you know, she she pitied their outlook and the way they perceived her. Uh, I was raging, rattling, <laughs> fuming. I felt so angry that they would compare Lara to me and her appearance and suddenly I was this person that Lara should look like and someone who you know, it's considered attractive by whatever mainstream beauty standards. Um, and I went home that evening, was really reflective. I think I cried the whole night. <laughs> and not because of what, what they said or the reaction, but because I realized that deep down, like that the hijab and what it meant for me. And I knew wearing it would complete me. Um, and I reflected on why I was so afraid to wear it and why in the face of, you know, opposition or you know, that I would succumb to, to societal pressure and not pursue something that is so important to me. And so the next morning I got up, put on the headscarf, had no clothes to go along with it. I wore the same jeans and top for the remaining week I was in Spain because everything I had, everything else I had was like short shorts and tank tops. Um, and I walked into the shoe shop that day and told them I started wearing the headscarf and that they had inspired me to wear it. Um, so although the reason I wore it was rooted in a really, I suppose, stubborn conviction that, you know, I'm the exact same person I was the previous day. And that the only thing blinding your perception of me is quite literally this piece of fabric on my head and how I suppose that decision I took as a 19 year old has inevitably changed the course of my life in the most beautiful way. Um, and the journey I took embodying and, and growing with the hijab. Ah, uh, I love that from Yara Alaga. Now, TV presenter Angela Scanlon didn't make our live event last week. She wasn't able to come, but she did kindly send us her story to include in the podcast. It's all about reshaping the relationship you have with your body as it grows older. So, getting older and bolder. I love it. Because also bold has so many connotations. Over here, bold seems to just mean like brash. But like, 
at home, it's like you're a bold old bitch. And I love that. That's the vibe I want to embody as I get older. Um, yeah, so I have written, I've written a piece. I talk quite a lot on social media about, about um, body image and I've kind of been articulating it um, a bit more. And I've written something because it's easier for me to read because I can pretend it's <laughs> not come from my head. Um, but it is about um, my relationship with my body as I've gotten older. So it's not a poem, like it's a little chunky. So I'm hoping you hang in there, right? I mean, you know, it's a couple of pages. And if I stumble, I'm just going to plow on you know, because I'm human. Also, you're in my bedroom. It's currently my office, but um, it feels like a very intimate moment for me. <laughs> Anywho, here we go. I have had pretty ambivalent feelings about my body for a very long time. It was something to be managed and punished, preened and presented. I was in it, but it never really fit me. It never provided a place of comfort or rest or safety as if it was borrowed or I was squatting. I lived on edge waiting for someone to show up and give me permission to unpack or for someone to land with keys to a new place, somewhere that might actually feel like home. Often we spend so much time in our heads, battling, reasoning, chatting, what ifing with ourselves, that we're much more comfortable there, even in the tight confines of our schools. How often during the day do you check in with yourself to see how your body actually is, how often do you listen to the niggles or give room for the creaks to creak? Do you override the messages you get from your body in favour of powering through, dismissing the desire and sometimes desperate need for attention, for rest, for love? After I had my daughter, I felt a shift in my body. No, I felt a shift in the way I see my body. I became more forgiving, more compassionate, more gentle. I stopped seeing the body, my body, as something foreign that needed to be trained and forced and tamed. I had to look at how judgmental I had become, not just with myself, but with everyone around. I realised my own dysmorphia and the way I related to my body was not just something contained within me. It spilled out into what I thought about other people. If they didn't have a hard and fit body, it was laziness. I quickly switched in my mind someone with soft curves into someone sloth-like. It's difficult to admit that and it's also difficult to change in motion. I didn't want my relationship with my body, with bodies in general, to leak onto my daughter, to poison her perception. I wanted her to continue to view herself the way I did, as a beautiful, perfect soul in a spacesuit that helped her to enjoy everything that this human experience has to offer. Her body is something that facilitates her journey through this life. It's her container and her home for as long as she's on this earth. I want her to marvel at its complexities and revel in the imperfections. I want her to nurture and nourish it, to push it so she knows her strength and power, to rest it so she feels her strength and power. Her chubby soft legs made me view the softness of the human body in a completely different way. It allowed me, if not to celebrate, then to at least accept the softness in my own body. When I feel the folds of my skin or a bulge that hasn't always been there, I try to look at it with tenderness, to think of how I feel when I run my hand across her little bloated belly. I feel her skin and I see the rise and fall of her breath and I apply the same wonder and love I give her to myself. 
I see how she moves and the joy she gets from discovering and using her body. And I allow myself to do that too, to rediscover my own body, to unpack my bags for a bit. And as Mary Oliver says, breathe into the soft animal of my body. Something magical happened when I started to live inside my body rather than in my head. I started to focus on my breath to drop into my body to really feel the air enter my body and fill my lungs, to feel the cool air in through my nose and the warmth of the exhale, the in and out, the up and down, the expansion and contraction, to realise that this act of breathing, this complex mechanical motion that we do without thought from the moment we arrive on this earth, is how we manage to remain here. It stops, we stop, yet every day we run around unaware, taking for granted the mastery and magnificence just beneath the bonnet of our bodies. We only look up when the engine stalls, when the breath gives up. What if instead of waiting for it to break down, we can marvel and appreciate it in the moment? I decided to develop a relationship with my body that was based on respect. Love felt like a bit of a stretch at the time, but I figured I could manage some jovial respect. Every morning, maybe you can try this, every morning I place one hand on my heart and I connect and one on my belly to feel the rise and fall to bring me back. It felt uncomfortable at first, foreign, embarrassing, but over time that changed to comfort and relief. It changed to appreciation. I no longer viewed my body as a vessel to be abused and pushed and tested. I started to fall in love with it to feel deeply thankful for all the years it had given me, for the moments it danced through pain and ran into the fire for birthing a baby, for healing, for breathing every single day, for sticking with me while I relentlessly punished it like an inanimate object, for coming back time and time again when I abandoned it, for forgiving me. I already have a vulnerability Um, I hope um, some of that resonated Um, and that you can maybe learn to be a little bit softer um, and more forgiving of your own body and to love it and all its beautiful madness and imperfection, you know, or something. (laughs) Really enjoyed that from Angela Scanlon. Now, in the middle of our event, Kathy and I took a moment to reminisce about the podcast and to talk about some of our favourite, favourite episodes. So I wanted to bring you that before we move on with the rest of the women's stories. It's a look back at some of the 500 shows we've made so far and I suppose about what the podcast has meant to us. Now, we thought since it's our 500th episode, in case you hadn't copped on to that yet, that Roshan and I would have a look back at some of our favourite episodes. Now, very briefly and moments from the podcast. Um, Roisin. Yeah, so I, I said, Cathy, I just like to ask, you're very good at summing things up. So I'm gonna ask you what your memories are of the early years. And did you think that we'd be still here in 500 episodes? And I have to say, we've got Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan on the call with us. It's a total team effort, the podcast. We couldn't do it without them. And it's just such a beautiful collaboration. But did you think we'd get had 500 episodes in us, Cathy? I did not. And I'll tell you, <laughs> you conceived this baby back in the days when, the, when, when podcasts were neither popular nor profitable. And I think my postman now runs a podcast. So 
the fact that it's lasted 500 episodes is actually quite astonishing. But Roshan, I want to say you did conceive it. You gave birth to it. You drove it. We've had fantastic producers in the meantime, two of whom are sitting looking at us and managing all this tonight and talking technology that I have no idea what they're talking about. And also JJ Vernon, our marvellous sound man. But above all, I want to say to you that you actually kept the vision. And I wandered off away at times and then I wandered back. I always tried you back, Cassie. I was like, here, where do you think you're going? I was like, (laughs) you did, you did. And thank you for that because I love it when I'm doing it. Thank you. And I just want to say that there are a number of things that I do remember with great affection. And we've had some amazing people on. Samantha Power, for example, who was the US ambassador to the UN and is now heading up their international development division. I love that interview. Margaret Atwood. Um, the let me see the, the women from the Irish hockey team, oh. uh, Chloe and Anna, who came in with their medals. Oh, it's so they came second in the world. I mean, it was one of the most exciting days in the history of the women's podcast. Um, and Leo, Leo, oh, who yeah. came to the Body and Soul Festival in County Meath, County We don't know any other Leos, I suppose. Was it no. wasn't your man Leo from Hollywood? That guy wasn't him. Well, it's not him. It was Leo Varadkar, obviously, and he was he was the Taoiseach at the time. And I, I, why I remember it so vividly is not just that he did come in and he was a good sport, but also he was dreadfully heckled, if you remember. Um, and we had to sit it out. And he was pretty gracious about it. I suppose that's what politicians do. And we forget that that's what they do, apart from doing great things or doing a lot of damage, whatever you think about them, they're very good at putting on a game face. And that's what I remember. And I also remember finally, and but among many others, I was always moved by everybody we talked to, Roshan, because they speak very much to us. I mean, yeah. it's, called, it's called Women's Podcast for a reason. It is universal. But another woman that actually made a deep impression on me was the German ambassador, Dyke Potzel, um, who is still the German ambassador to Ireland and spoke about her East German upbringing. And there was something deeply inspiring about that woman that that I must say has stayed with me. A couple of my favourite moments. Do you remember after the abortion referendum came through? It was like, I think it was the next day. We had Simon Harris in. We had Alva Smith. You were doing the interviews and I was there. I, I don't know how I even spoke. I was so emotionally exhausted and exhilarated. And I remember... Marion Keyes getting on the phone she wasn't in the studio she rang Simon Harris to basically tell him how great he was and it was an incredible day you know do you remember that one that was that was fantastic um also another one I think Jenny might remember is uh when we had the virtual sex toys in the studio (laughs) we had these reality what is it virtual reality goggles I don't know how it came up, but it was like a scientific thing. And oh, my God, our studio is right beside the newsroom. So we were in there like we're just wetting ourselves, shrieking our heads off. And really important people are doing really important things right outside. So there's moments like that that I'll never forget. And then the other one was in uh, we did a really great live event when we could all be together. And it was women in comedy. And we had an amazing episode in the headquarters of Twitter. We had like Marion Keys, we had Amy Huberman, we had Eleanor Tiernan, Joanne McNally and Alison Spittle doing little bits of stand up in front of all our audience. It was great to be able to invite you. But the wonderful thing is that in the pandemic, we have found another way to connect to people. And we've had our big nights in and we've had these events. And it's been so special and so great to see that we can still connect in a way that we have been doing tonight 
even though it's virtual. So I think that's enough from us, really, Kathy. I think we should get back to the storytelling. But I'm so proud to work with you and Jenny and Suzanne on this. And I'm really delighted with myself that we can do this together. It's, it's fantastic. And can I just say that our last, that our last episode in the studio, which I remember with some alarm, was uh, we were interviewing three recently elected um, women TDs, Jennifer O'Carroll McNeil, Holly Cairns and Claire Kiran were sitting there and you came back in from the newsroom looking as though you had seen a ghost. And it was Leo Varadkar had spoken from Washington and had said the schools were closing that evening. And you and I toddled up the street, actually in some, in, 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 in a bit of a state. And we went to Grogan's and we had whiskey and a toasty. And that was it. I don't think I've actually laid eyes on you since, except through Zoom. I enjoyed that looking back, but now we return to the stories of our older and bolder women. Our youngest guest, Inulo Akiolo, also known as Inni, is next. She is 19, but she says she's still 14 in her head, and I'm sure that's probably going to rise as she gets older, or maybe not. Anyway, Inni spoke really eloquently about that transition from teenager to adult. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak today. A little bit about myself. I'm 19. I'm in my third year of my law degree and I live at home in Dundalk with my younger brother and sister. And right now I'm on an internship working from home like everybody else. And obviously that comes with its own set of problems, as we know. Um, I'm really, really glad I can come on here and talk about this topic because being young and in this pandemic has really forced us to grow, whether we like it or not. A lot of young people are obsessed with the fact that our youth is being cut short and I think that this is a dangerous mindset to have I wish that we could just get rid of it in my mind nothing bad lasts forever we'll still be able to go out and have fun and do everything that we want to do and it'll be 10 times more enjoyable well at least that's what I tell myself to stay sane anyways uh, this last year has made me realize so much especially the fact that ever since we were younger we were always governed by an institution be it youth clubs or sports teams but most specifically school every single day we were told where to sit we were told when to eat and we even had to ask if we could use the bathroom and then the teacher would say no <laughs> so we'd have to sit there so all of these rules and regulations and um, that were always enforced but never really explained then all of a sudden you're thrown into third level and nobody cares nobody's checking to see if you went to your lecture and nobody's calling your parents if you didn't show up at the end of the day it's your education you're the one paying for it and you're the one sitting that final exam and if you fail that final exam you're the one paying for the repeat <laughs> so navigating life in your late teens and your early 20s it's already difficult enough but then throw a global health crisis into the mix and everything is just everywhere we think that we know everything when we know nothing <laughs> learning how to live life like actually live life is something that nobody can prepare you for and it's difficult because there's so many different routes that you can take all those years of school and we were never taught how to do our taxes. I just have one question. What is USC and why is it taking all of my money? I need to know. <laughs> but on a more positive note, university is an Eden for growth. There are so many things to get involved in and so many opportunities that we can take advantage of. But the thing is that nobody's going to tell you that those advantages and those opportunities are there. You just have to get stuck in. No one is going to tell you that you need to get involved in clubs and societies because it looks great on a CV and that's what employers want to see. No one is going to 
tell you that you should probably pay the deposit for a postgraduate degree that you want to do the next year. Learning all of these things as a young adult, it comes naturally on its own. But with the freak occurrence of this pandemic, the realization has dawned on us a lot faster and it's been somewhat of a very rude awakening. So I figured out that as cliche as it sounds, life is what you make of it. Many people in Ireland, I've noticed, have been blaming the youth for the spread of the virus, which I think is just simply unfair. Young people have been so entrepreneurial during this lockdown. They have made profitable businesses from the comforts of their bedrooms. They have made documentaries, produced films, showing what life is like in the pandemic, which will probably be used as a historical source in the next coming years. People's uh, years abroad were cancelled, so they found opportunities to teach children English in countries like Italy and Spain. And with jobs not hiring as much as they used to, getting an internship like my own was so difficult that we had to rely on the networking and the all of the different opportunities that we had in order to use our own connections to find an internship. So as difficult as it was, I was really proud that I was able to make that for myself. Although the lockdown is hasn't had all positive results for the demographic of young people that are suffering in this lockdown and are feeling as if their voice isn't being heard. I understand that it is really hard. My younger sister, she's 18, Toby, and she has cerebral palsy. But watching her sit in front of the front door in her wheelchair, waiting for the bus to come and pick her up for school, it's it, honestly, it breaks my heart. And it's sad because the bus doesn't come and then comes the tears and the screams of frustration. And that's what happens when you take away services from the people that need them the most and I just hope that as soon and this does it also goes for homelessness it goes for mental health all of these really really important services that people are living without with the country opening up I hope that these people get the priority in realigning them back on path and I would urge people to think of the youth that are really trying to either better themselves or try to get through the day rather than focusing on the small percentage that aren't obeying restrictions. But anyways, to me, aging is a process and growing up to see that nobody really knows what they're doing. The pandemic is proof of that. Everyone just looks like they have it all together in a sort of fake it till you make it type of way, if you will. But as we get older and bolder, we should push ourselves to do things that we have never thought would even cross our minds. And I say this was with the wisdom of a teenager, although I am excited to learn adventure and maybe eventually figure out my talks. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> that was Iniolu Ekiolu there. Our final guest in this Highlights Reel was author and Irish Times columnist Hilary Fannin. Now Hilary is 59 in real life but she reckons she's around 40 in her head but that doesn't mean she's despondent about getting older. She also said she's really looking forward to being 60 and she's enjoying ageing now and feels that as she moves forward she feels life is getting even better, which is a really hopeful note. Hilary brought us all to tears, actually, with a heartfelt story about her mother, Mary, who died in 2017, aged 90. Here she is, Hilary Fannin. A lifelong diary keeper, the first entry in her diary for January 1st, 2017, the year of her death was lose some weight lose some weight. The same three words that she'd been writing in her pocket diaries for decades. Her obsession 
with weight loss began early in her marriage when with three babies all under three she kind of lost herself she lost the glamorous young woman she had been she was a soprano she worked in the royal the capital the the gaiety um, as an actress and a singer and this loss of her profession of her autonomy of her dreams and of her art shattered a lot of her life and it was a loss that was exacerbated by you know my father's infidelities and absences and by financial crisis and eviction and the loss of family home and you know you name it they they went the whole hog really but after her death I began flipping through the diaries that had survived you know all the house moves that she'd made in the intervening years and um, I think I was expecting some wisdom I got it in a funny way. But for the most part, they were pretty prosaic. They were pretty humdrum. They were records of her day, and, and they didn't really reveal much. Um, she liked to write about the weather. Um, her meteorological observations were uh, were many. Um, and all of these were closely tied up with her laundry. So she would write, uh, windy and a bit sunny, not bad, washing out, no showers. Sunny, a bit windy, pretty good, washing out, showers. It took it all back in. And she also tended to illustrate her diary entries with little drawings, with little cartoons, always of this rotund little woman, sometimes with pegs in her mouth, you know, um, to, to illustrate the washing. She could draw. She was a brilliant mimic. She was a fantastic cook. She was funny. She was immensely charming. And she was beautiful and and she didn't need, at any stage in her life, let alone as she grew older, to continue to berate herself, to hate herself, to starve herself, to deny herself, to leave warning messages for herself on the fridge door. Or <laughs> was her want to stand sideways in front of the, the wardrobe, long wardrobe mirror and then draw her naked outline in lipstick on the glass. And that sticky red silhouette was um, an admonishing doppelganger telling her that she just wasn't good enough as she was. She did finally age beyond her more outrageous diet regimes, the banana and eggs diet, the pure lime juice and PL, the PLJ and limits biscuits diet, the chicken and white wine diet, which was a pretty good one. She did finally stop attending weight loss gatherings and keep fit classes where on one occasion she upset the group's uh, leaders already and fragile equilibrium by pretending to be a little pony when they're asked to to trot around the class so she was you know doing a little neighing and stuff um she had so much talent she had wonderful friendships she loved books she loved music film theater art poetry we mentioned Paula, Paula Mayne earlier and Paula became a friend of Mary in, in Mary's very late life and they talked about poetry. She found and she brought joy and fun wherever she went and she was able to forgive, if not forget, the actions of my equally creative and capricious father. But she never did forgive her body for being mortal she could never accept ageing. In her 80s, she used to tell me that she didn't recognise herself in the mirror. Who is that little old woman with the dreadful hat, um, the dreadful hair, she'd ask her reflection, or, or maybe um, 
who is that little old woman without any eyebrows because eyebrows are their absence, scored very highly on her self-flagellation hit list. It doesn't matter what you look like. I used to say to her, there is so much more to you than that. Um, And you're right, of course, she'd say, and then she'd, you know, she'd get her eyebrow pencil and she would draw on a magnificent eyebrow, a superb arch, and then she'd raise it at me in a kind of, you know, theatrical mockery. So I would ask her what it was that she expected to see in the mirror. Because she, we would be out maybe in a cafe or in the supermarket and she'd catch sight of herself and she would admonish her reflection. You know, oh my God, look at this. I'm so fat. I'm so, you know. And I would say to her, what is it that you expect to see? And she would look at me and these sparkling green eyes and this lovely face. And she'd say, I expect to see me as I was when I was 20. Because that's who I am inside. I'm 20. I'm still a girl. So I chose the clothes for the under- I chose the clothes for the undertaker. I chose a lovely white cardigan with splashes of colour, pink and yellow and black, and I and I chose white linen trousers and a silk headscarf, and I put her eyebrow pencil and her lipstick in an envelope for the mortician, and I said that woman would not put the bins out without her makeup on, and she loved a good eyebrow. And Mary was a fabulous corpse. She was beautiful. So I think about it when I sharpen my own eyebrow pencils and when I twist open my own mascara and I wonder at what point in her life did she have to learn that how she looked mattered more than how she felt. And I try, as I get older, to know that difference in myself. In the end, she carved out her own unique path through an era when an awful lot of women vanished behind closed doors and became shadows behind net curtains. And the girl inside my mother lived for 90 years. I draw my own conclusions from that, but that girl was sometimes impenetrable, she was sometimes frustrating, but she has gifted me with an optimism. And as I'm waving goodbye to my 50s, then like her or maybe because of her, I journey on without the chicken and white wine diets, but with a with an endless and growing sense of possibility. Hilary Fannin, I don't want to say to that, except that you have truly sent out a universal message for women and that we've heard in in a few different ways tonight, but as always, never a wasted word and every one of them packed with soul and heart and meaning. And thank you so much for that. Thank you. It's enough to say that at one point, having met Hillary one night at some social occasion, uh, my family and I decided we wanted to adopt her. Um, and Hillary, I want to say that the, the offer is still open. That's brilliant, Cathy, because I, I could really do it. <laughs> I've got a house full of people. I, can I just say this? Tonight, Man U's playing and Arsenal are playing. And I have two sons and one is a Man U supporter and the other is an Arsenal supporter. So if you could kind of collect me now, that would be really useful. Oh, well, <laughs> not with all that. I don't know who won. But anyway, I hope it's all calm and wonderful in your house. <laughs> now, thank you to everyone here this evening. You've been a wonderful audience. And thanks to our participants. Ten incredible stories. 
all from such different perspectives, but with a universal message that growing older and bolder is a privilege and something we should never take for granted. Thanks to everyone who helped with this event behind the scenes. And Lord knows, there's always those people who make up this fantastic team. Tanya Meehan, Faye Joyce and the Irish Times marketing team. And to everyone who has ever contributed to our 500 episodes, which is an awful lot of content and do download some of it. There is treasure there. Huge thanks to Declan Conlon, who is in charge of all the Irish Times podcasts and to the producers of the women's podcast, Roisin Ingle. Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan, and to our very sound, sound man, JJ Vernon, who does all the technical work behind the scenes. And there is genuinely a touch of genius behind his work that never ceases to amaze me. Yeah, you definitely have to mention JJ. I'm, I'm so moved by tonight and so grateful that we could celebrate 500 and, you know, in, in the company of all of you people and all of you uh, who follow us and, and support what we do. It's been such a joy to bring podcast to you over the past more than five years and 500 episodes please do subscribe to it will you and tell all your friends because we're doing something I think that's quite different and we love making the podcast and creating this space for the voices of all women Hillary set me off see Hillary Olivia started it then Hillary ended it it's too much as you've heard this evening there are so many different experiences and ways of looking at the world. And women are not some homogenous bunch of people with the same perspective on everything. And we try on the women's podcast as much as we can to represent them all. Maybe not always do it perfectly, but we do try. That's our, our intention. Jesus. The podcast <laughs> is made by women for women everywhere. And we're so grateful for all your support. Here's to another 500 episodes. But until then, it's goodbye from this nearly 50-year-old who is still in her 20s in her head. And um, goodbye from this nearly 70-year-old who has learned something tonight, who is just very grateful to be nearly 70. Goodbye, everybody. Stay older and bolder, all of you. And thank you. And keep listening to the women's podcast. A lot done, more to do, as somebody once said. <laughs> Mind yourself and take care. Thank you, everyone. And that's all we have time for. Huge thanks to you for sticking with us through 500 episodes. And we really hope you enjoyed this celebration of women and a celebration of the joy of ageing. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. That's it for now. Take care, mind yourselves, and I'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.